This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. On the show, we spoke with Laura Tingle, political editor of the Australian Financial Review, and she discussed the latest in federal politics, including what might be in the budget for 2017. Then we spoke with Dr Andrew Jamison. He's a curator and senior lecturer in archaeology at the University of Melbourne, and he's put together a show at the Ian Potter Gallery of Art. It's called Syria, Ancient History, Modern Conflict. Then we spoke with Mark Isaacs, author of the book The Undesirables, Inside Nauru, and we discussed with Mark his experience working at the Nauru Regional Processing Centre for the Salvation Army. Finally, we spoke with Dr Janine Burke, a Senior Honorary Fellow at the Victorian College of the Arts in Melbourne. She's written a piece about Australian women artists and has anything really changed for them. And you're listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. And I have with me uh, now on the phone the wonderful Laura Tingle. Thanks for joining us, Laura. Hi, Amy. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Laura, no, it's great to have you with us. Um, Now, you're the political editor of the Australian Financial Review and you're up there in Canberra, I'm guessing, at the moment? I am, I am. Yes. And the the place is jumping with uh, pre-budget excitement and enthusiasm. Well, not really, but you've got to make it sound exciting. You do, don't you? Well, Parliament is um, now in recess, so presumably it has died down a little. But in terms of um, the budget and and I guess the preparations that are underway, um, has... It seems like not a lot is coming out as to what will actually be included in the budget. Um, when do you think that might start to occur? Or have you heard any rumblings yourself? Hmm. Well, I think we're in this sort, of, uh, this sort of dead zone that you get in the months before the budget where a lot of the work has been done, uh, you know, the early work has been done on uh, not just the budget forecasts, but you know, what it is the government wants to have in the budget, what it wants as its political message. And uh, what tends to happen now is that they, they sort of agonise about what things that they'll try to release before the budget proper, um, you know, the, the days when everything was just uh, thrown out on the night are sort of over because they realise that a lot of stuff gets lost in the mix. Um, so, for example, this week you've seen uh, Scott Morrison, the Treasurer, uh, trailing his code on housing affordability, which is one of the big themes of the budget. Uh, but there are a whole range of things that they're trying to do in this budget. One of them is, of course, they've got to keep uh, up the arguments about financial uh, sustainability and um, they've got to find some more budget cuts because the so-called zombie measures from 2014 have to be dealt with. Either they've got to be dumped and replaced by something else or or re-embraced. Uh, so there's a lot of that sort of uh, shuffling, um, paddling underwater activity going on at the moment. Um, I think um, my my bet is that what we will see a lot of, and I think you can see that in some of the rhetoric, particularly from the Prime Minister, if you're sort of looking for smoke signals, is uh, that there'll be a lot of stuff about infrastructure, whatever else happens in the budget, because I think they feel that, you know, building building uh, roads roads and rail lines and um, and things that people can really identify with is probably one of the few things where they can regain their credibility with voters at a time when people are pretty jaded. Well, they sh- they are a bit jaded. And in particular, I mean, the, the Snowy Hydro um, idea is p- potentially yeah. one of those infrastructure thought 
bubbles slash projects yeah. that they're hoping might um, put some glow back into their poll numbers. Um, mm. What what do you think they... So infrastructure might be a centrepiece, I guess, or a selling point. But in terms of um, their economic policy, which you're, uh, you're, you discuss in your latest column on Friday, um, which is entitled Things Aren't Going Quite Going to Plan for Malcolm Turnbull's Government, which is quite an understatement, potentially. Um, <laughs> is the, with the company tax cuts, for example, that was really their centrepiece that they took to the election. It really is their economic policy for jobs and growth. But they came out um, this last in the last week and discussed um, the pub test as being a proof that this company tax cut uh, will go down well with the voters and will work uh, economically. Could you share with us yeah. exactly what that what happened there? Uh, well, they got themselves into all sorts of trouble because um, where we got up to was, as you say, what was the centrepiece of the election campaign was the Senate has passed Part of the company tax cuts, um, that is, uh, c- companies with turnover up to $50 million a year will get a company tax cut, uh, but the ones above that won't. Now, the original plan, uh, as outlined in the budget, was all, uh, sorry, as outlined in the election campaign, was that this was going to be a gradual um, implementation of this tax cut. So they can say, well, we have implemented what we thought what we said we were going to do for the current term of Parliament. And essentially, they're saying we're going to re-prosecute the case for uh, larger companies getting it at the next election. Uh, But I think uh, the problem is that they can't really generate any economic modelling to to support the case that the company tax cuts that they've given will actually do anything for economic growth, which is the whole uh, sort of rationale for for the cuts. So Scott Morrison came out last week and said, look, you know, press gallery journalists really need to get out more, you know, that all they need to do is go down to the local pub and ask people down there whether company tax cuts are good for business and growth and uh, they'll get the right answer. But as my colleague Jacob Grieber said in a, a line I subsequently stole, you know, if you're having to ask drunk people for your, um, uh, for an endorsement, you're in a bit of trouble. So um, it, it just became one of those sort of sort of silly things that, politicians say which sort of gets wildly out of control and um, becomes a bit of an object of farce in its own right. Do you think there's any likelihood that um, that next round of company tax cuts for, for companies over 50, 50 million in turnover will actually eventuate? Or, or is this kind of just to placate um, the business lobbies in terms of uh, their calls for uh, large corporates receiving these tax cuts? Look, I think it's a real problem for them because uh, if you think about it, do they go into the next election campaign once more saying, you know, only, oh, well, you know, we really think that, you know, really large companies should get company tax cuts. Uh, Now, one, they can't even, uh, if they're doing that, they can't even argue, oh, well, small business will benefit from this. So they really sort of, they really are targeting the big end of town. And in the defence of people like, organisations like the Business Council, even they sort of say reasonably quietly, well, look, we'll take a company tax cut if we can get it. But what we think should happen is that there should be a more comprehensive round of tax changes. And this is the real problem. I mean, um, we've got bracket creep, that is um, tax revenue rising as people's, uh, people move into higher uh, tax brackets with their income levels. That's basically one of the biggest things uh, that will help drive the drive the uh, pushback to budget balance. But 
it's always been incredible political poison uh, that people find that they get a pay rise, but most of it's been uh, clawed back from uh, from income tax. So by by the time of the next budget next year, and certainly uh, the, the election campaign, which will probably be sometime late next year, uh, people are going to be wanting to the, for the government to re readdress and revisit the whole issue of tax reform. And uh, so we're, we're in a pause where it's not on the agenda for this budget, but I think it's going to definitely have to be a much more comprehensive issue for um, uh, an election year budget. Yeah, that's really interesting because we've seen in the past that they've had various ideas around tax reform, haven't they? It's We've seen the, the floating of the states um, using or getting some GST revenue to then pay uh, for education themselves. We've seen um, the floating of changing the GST and increasing it. But the, the problem, I guess, is that there's a rhetoric around there not being a revenue problem and that generally touching tax in any significant ways is damaging to the economy, um, mm. unless it's for tax cuts. Um, but what... Where do you think they could move? Where is the room to move? And are Labor actually successfully wedging the government on this issue or not? Look, I think the government's wedging itself on the issue, really. Uh, I mean, Labor's... It's sort of leaving uh, Labor room to play. I mean, if you think about it, Labor gave the government huge room to move last year by talking about superannuation tax reform and negative gearing. The government didn't go there with them. Uh, Scott Morrison has sort of locked himself into this fairly ludicrously tight position on tax where, as you say, essentially, unless you're doing tax cuts, you don't do anything. Um, I, I think... Uh, I mean, I think the government has, or Malcolm Turnbull, when he became Prime Minister, has sort of been uh, unfairly criticised on some of the GST uh, issues because he did look at them again and decide, well, no, I can't do them. Um, partly because there were so many uh, expectations and wish lists built up about what you could do with GST revenue that it made it a pretty unwieldy beast because ultimately it's up to the state's to, say, to agree to a change in the GST rate. And while they might all complain and carry on, um, you know, I, I, I think reasonably, uh, you think about it in a reasonable, pragmatic sense, do you really think all the states are going to agree to an increase in the GST unless they get the lion's share of it? And if they do that, there's not going to be a lot of money left for compensating people who are uh, you know, badly done by by the GST. Which raises another question, which is that if you want to do something on GST to give yourself some more funding and all those sorts of things, and you're still looking to improve the budget position, the brutal reality, which no, nobody in politics will talk about, is that not everybody is going to be able to be properly compensated. Some people are going to be a bit worse off. So it's, it's a very complicated situation, but as you say, they've painted themselves into a terrible corner on it, and I don't know exactly how, given... You know, given the amount of trouble that, that they're in, uh, they can really get out of it. The crucial first point for uh, Malcolm Turnbull and Scott Morrison and the government, though, I think, is to really get the political debate firmly back into uh, discussion about the economy rather than social issues like 18C because they're on sort of slightly less uh, wild ground uh, against their conservative rump on economic issues than they are on social policy. So this budget's really about a reset for their economic credibility. It is, and I th it's, it's about a reset for their economic credibility, and it's potentially also an issue, a, a, a reset for 
the sort of equity argument. I mean, all of that bad blood that was created with voters uh, by their changes to school funding, university funding, health funding from 2014 has never been resolved. Now, it's never going to be pretty. I mean, it's not like the government now can say, oh, look, well, Tony Abbott did this and we're going to take all of that away and we're going to be nice to you. They've still got to cut, cut funding. But if they can do that in a way that looks more equitable, uh, for example, that might take money off uh, you know, more uh, well-to-do private schools and gives it to the public school system, that would really start to change people's perceptions about what the government is about uh, and you know, might give them a bit more breathing room. That's an excellent point. And I do um, remember that I think you recall when in one of your columns talking about uh, education policy and that uh, mm. something will come out in June and that this may be um, a direction that they might be taking. Yeah. But once again, uh, it's just when you think that uh, it seems to be sort of tracking reasonably well, they then had to cancel the, uh, or they've they sort of put back the meeting with the premiers. Uh, to discuss a whole range of things, including school funding, until after the budget. So it's a little bit unclear at this stage whether they will announce something in the budget on schools funding uh, pending the meeting with the premiers or whether they'll just talk about an overall amount and leave the fight till later on. So it's all a bit up in the air at the moment. Mm. And in terms of um, housing and housing affordability, uh, we've been discussing this um, for quite a few weeks. Um, it's something that comes up a lot. And I know that mm. the, the Treasurer yesterday, Scott Morrison, um, gave an address to the Australian Housing and Urban Research Institute in Melbourne. And what, I guess, was the substance of his speech and, and I guess, the underlying motives behind it? Uh, well, uh, it, 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 the speech was, as they say, over-reported by some people who sort of added a whole heap of things that the Treasurer didn't talk about. But essentially what he was talking about were a few things. One of them was about social housing, um, and uh, he, he was once again on the issue of supply and saying um, two things. One of them was we really need to find a way to help uh, older people downsized their houses. There's a whole range of uh, effects that you get from uh, the pension and tax systems, which mean that it's not actually all that a good idea for a lot of people to actually downsize. Um, they can lose a lot of money in the process and lose a lot of money in pension and so forth. Um, so he's, he, and that's been an idea that has been floating around in his head since he was social services minister. The other one was he was talking about uh, the vacant property problem, which is a particular thing in Melbourne, as I understand it, where you've got foreign investors who come in, basically buy buy a, an apartment or a house, lock it up, don't rent it out, and it's taken out of the um, rental supply market. So he's thinking about those issues a lot. Uh, he's thinking about trying to make the, um, the agreement with the states on uh, public housing more affordable. And he was once again making the case for why you shouldn't mess around too much with the private rental market and the tax treatment of it. Um, I mean, the government's made it quite clear that it doesn't want to do anything on negative gearing. Um, and I, I think he was also signalling that he's not all that keen on uh, inter interfering with the capital gains tax regime on house, uh, investor housing. His essential argument was 90% of um, investor housing is, is uh, owned by mum and dad investors, uh, they're chasing capital gains rather than uh, an, an income stream uh, and uh, you don't want to... If, if they all leave the market, 
we won't have enough rental housing, which will only make housing affordability even more of a problem. I think one of the interesting aspects of this, if you think about it, is that the Coalition is really thinking now about a very large slab of housing which isn't owner-occupied. I mean, the debate seems to be dominated by a discussion about owner-occupied housing, but the Coalition is now talking a lot more about how you keep a viable pool of rental properties in the market. Well, it... It seems like he's almost skirting around the edges, though, of this problem because there's only so long that you can talk about a supply issue um, and and kind of tweak around the edges as APRA are doing in terms of um, interest-only loans. But... I mean, David Murray uh, came out uh, a week or so ago, and as did the AICD, saying that uh, negative gearing was distorting the housing market. When you see these kind of senior business figures coming out in support of changes to negative gearing, do you think do you think that would have any effect or impact in the long term on on governments shifting the coalition government in particular shifting towards tweaks or changes? Look, I think they've just, once again, they've locked themselves in uh, so hard against doing anything on negative gearing. I thought they might still have some capacity to do something on capital gains, but I think they're sort of, you know, backing away from that as well. Um, I think you're right. You know, yes, you can say there are supply issues, but if you, you know, if you only have, you know, so many levers as the federal government to do anything about the state of the housing market, um, you've, you've got to really think seriously about using them and, and tax is essentially your only lever uh, and uh, instead they're basically leaving it to the regulators uh, to try to cool down the housing market. Um, now there are arguments uh, that you know suggest that that's not a bad thing. Um, I mean it's what a lot of other countries are doing um, they're just trying to sort of get the, the bubble aspect out of the market but it doesn't um, it doesn't address what is an underlying demand problem because we have a strongly growing population, um, people need housing and uh, and they're just being priced out of it. Well, absolutely, and particularly younger people. And we saw Darren Hinch this morning on RN Breakfast suggest that young people have unrealistic expectations of owning a house uh, and that mm. his parents only bought a house in their 40s that perhaps we're just uh, expecting too much. Do you think that's that argument flies? Uh, well, I don't think it really sort of resolves anything whether whether young people have high expectations or not. I mean, the, the bottom line is that uh, the Australian community has had this high expectation of home ownership for years and years and years. But I think what we're seeing here now is that it's not just about housing uh, being unaffordable for owner-occupiers, but that, you know, you potentially have housing being unaffordable for renters as well. It's become a much bigger problem than it was, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, You know, it's not just about the fact you can't buy your first home. It's about the fact that, um, you know, you're just not not sort of going to be viable in the market uh, at all for for a lot of people. Mm, Absolutely. It's really uh, quite concerning. And um, moving just across to something a little more further afar, um, Mm. with Syria, we've seen uh, that allegedly the Assad uh, regime committed some kind of atrocity in terms of a chemical attack um, on on a civilian population in Syria, um, which is not proven yet uh, that it it was the Assad regime, but um, there are suggestions that it could have been or is likely to. And then we've seen, you know, a huge um, number of Western uh, nation leaders come out um, in condemnation of of, uh, that attack, but also in support of Donald Trump. 
Trump's very, um, mm. really very a reactive um, response to this. It almost seems mm. quite disproportionate in terms of what prior presidents might have done as a first option. Um, We've seen Malcolm Turnbull then come out and really support uh, Trump and suggest that Assad uh, has almost disqualified himself from the position of leader of, of Syria or president of Syria. Is this a movement in terms of our, our foreign policy in regard to Syria? Well, it definitely is. I mean, we aren't talking about regime change officially at this stage, but you know, we saw this change of language reflecting the American change of language uh, on Friday, uh, sort of saying, uh, you know, that, that you couldn't see Assad being part of the solution or part of a peaceful settlement in Syria. I think, um, you know, there are a couple of things here. One of them is, of course, there's history here about chemical attacks and I think a sense in the West that uh, the failure to act earlier, uh, when there were earlier atrocities, um, both... Uh, helped Assad and also facilitated uh, Russia uh, to, to add, or sort of gave the green light, if you like, to Russia to come in and um, and support Assad and they're now sort of dealing with the consequences of, of that as well. So I think it's it, it's complicated um, but and it's more complicated because I think most, most a lot of Western countries are vaguely, well not vaguely, they are very alarmed and very nervous about uh, Donald Trump and his judgment on these issues. Um, morally, I think it was one of those things where they thought, oh, well, you know, we can support this because it was just a really horrendous uh, thing to happen. But at the same time, it was interesting to look at, say, the American media and the commentary in the American media, which started off saying, oh, yes, this is the right thing to do. And then over the next 24 hours, we're tending to say, well, um, you know, is it a good idea to be... Um, sending uh, Tomahawk missiles out because you've seen some footage of children, um, you know, in distress, uh, you know, and why why aren't all the other images of children in distress, you know, having this response and, you know, is that the right way to set foreign policy? Are you being strategic about it? So I think there's a an underlying uh, anxiety, particularly now that he sent um, ships to, uh, to sort of uh, muscle up to the North Koreans, there's a real anxiety about how... Uh, you know, what is actually driving policy in, in the United States, uh, but none, but also this sort of guilt or um, regret that something wasn't done earlier about the earlier chemical attacks. Yeah, well, that is particularly understandable. I think it was about 1,500 people who were affected by that first chemical attack. Yeah, yeah. So, so and uh, and of course, there was, and of course, there was, you know, people couldn't reach agreement in the various international fora about what to do about it. So, it's now become a more complicated issue because of uh, what what happens with Russia. Absolutely. And just finally, Laura, I'd love to pick your brain on uh, Malcolm's visit to India. So, mm. I went to a, a book launch. Um, it's the book is Fear of Abandonment, and it's by Alan Gingell, who was the director mm. of the Office of National Assessments and was also an advisor to Paul Keating. And um, yep. there was a He's question, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. A really great guy. And um, he, one of the questions was, what are some of the countries that have been neglected by Australia or under, had an, a real under focus? Um, and he said mm. one of them was Papua New Guinea and the other mm -hmm. was India. And yep. are we really seeing that kind of... 
Yes, yes, absolutely. Are we seeing yep. that reflected in the current, um, the trip over there in India? I think we are. I mean, I think it, it's interesting to see what uh, Malcolm Turnbull's been saying while he's been there. I mean, there was talk about getting a free trade agreement with India. Uh, I quite liked the, the frankness of both leaders saying, well, that's not actually going to happen at the moment. We're not really, we're not doing very well there. But um, there's a lot of really interesting um, rhetoric from our Prime Minister while he was there, or he still is there, uh, about the fact that uh, partly with the rise of China, uh, Australia and India, you know, look at the Asia Pacific, at the um, Indian Pacific region and say, well, we need as many democracies as possible, uh, you know, asserting our rights in this region. Not that you, once again, it's not that you're ganging up on China, but, you know, the alignment of interests between countries changes, I think, um, as, as the uh, geopolitics changes. So... Um, I think it's been a, a really interesting trip, and and uh, a lot. I mean, it's not he's not the first leader to go to India, but I think there is this this focus on um, um, there is this focus on trying to um, trying to um, sorry the uh, focus on trying to just sort of escalate the relationship a little. Yes, well, I mean, there's also there's the economic aspect and there's also um, cultural ties. I mean, we are very close in proximity to uh, many Asian regions, as you say, as well as Indonesia in particular. Um, do you yeah. think that this is something that will um, that will progress slowly? I know that uh, they commissioned a report um, by the DF- former DFAT secretary Peter Varghese. Mm. Um, mm. Just just how much of this is appearance, and how much do you think will actually um, eventuate in in real strong, really strong ties to India in particular? Well, I think the Indian relationship is, is changing you know, by the day, really. I mean, we've got this massive export industry of education to India. We've got a lot of Indian students here, a much larger uh, population of Indian migrants coming here. Um, so, you know, those people-to-people links, uh, you know, really do start to transform a, re- a relationship, whatever else is happening. Plus, of course, um, India is one, one of the few people who still want to buy coal from us. So, um, you know, coal is king. So uh, while that continues, uh, you know, that's obviously another relationship. Uh, the, the question is whether we can sort of also try to sell smart energy to them uh, in terms of the sort of you know, still uh, strong uh, stand we have on uh, on renewable energy and renewable energy technology. So I think you know, on both an economic front, uh, a strategic front and a political front, you know, we have a lot of, as, as well as the people-to-people links, we've got quite a, 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 you know, all the reasons why the relationship should be developing much faster than it has in the past. Absolutely, and, and you do raise there a good point that uh, the Adani um, mine is certainly nearing mm. to a, a point of decision making on both sides in terms of um, the Indian government, but also then um, whether the Turnbull government will provide a significant amount of money in the form of a loan to build. Uh, is it a railway line to the to That's and right. from the mine? Yep. 
Uh, yes, they, they they do they do have to make that decision, and uh, and uh, the prime minister was being lobbied about that by um, the head of Adani uh, in India with the uh, prime, Indian prime minister uh, standing by. So uh, <laughs> you know, no pressure, no pressure there. None at all, none at all. Not even domestically either. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Laura, for joining us. It's been amazing to pick your brain on so many different topics. Um, Your insight is so much valued by myself and everyone here. Always a pleasure, Amy. Have a lovely day. You too. Uh, We have with us in the studio Dr Andrew Jamison, who is from the University of Melbourne. He uh, lectures in archaeology and ancient world history um, and he is really um, a pragmatic or a practical academic in that he actually goes out into the field in a range of countries, but in particular um, Syria, to uncover and unearth um, artefacts of different periods. So thank you, Andrew, for joining us. Thanks, Amy. It's great to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, So, Andrew, first of all, um, how did you come to archaeology? What, What kind of drove your passion into this field and why did you start in it? Look, it's a very good question. In fact, uh, In my first year at the University of Melbourne, uh, I was very, very fortunate to be invited on an archaeological uh, expedition to Egypt, in fact, to the Western Desert, uh, to the Dakla Oasis. And uh, it was an amazing experience. And it really um, uh, determined my destiny, if you like. I was um, hooked uh, and became um, absolutely... uh, committed to a career in archaeology and for the last 30 years or so I've been going back and forth to the Middle East working on archaeological projects in places like Egypt, in Lebanon and of course in Syria and uh, in 1988 I was very very fortunate to be invited to join uh, University of Melbourne um, excavation project, a new research project to the Euphrates Valley, to the site of Talakma. And for a decade, for 10 years, I worked um, as part of that project on the salvage excavations at, uh, uh, at, at Talakma. And of course, now um, I, I'm employed at the University of Melbourne as a curator and lecturer and have responsibility for looking after the University of Melbourne's antiquities collection, but also the good fortune of uh, teaching and supervising uh, students in archaeology um, at, at Melbourne. What a wonderful job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm lucky. I, I get up in the morning and I love what I do. Yeah, that's great. And for those who aren't aware of Syria and its geography, where is Talakma in proportion or in relation to some of the more well-known cities like Aleppo? Okay, so Talakma and in fact all the University of Melbourne um, excavation projects in Syria are situated in the Euphrates Valley, in the middle and upper Euphrates Valley. Um, so we're in the north. We're in the north of Syria and uh, we're approximately 20 kilometres from the um, Turkish frontier. Okay. So in terms of um, where we're situated then, um, because Syria is surrounded by other countries as well, what are the, what are the bordering nations of Syria? So to the north, you've got uh, Turkey. Uh, to the west, there is Iraq. In the south, you've got Jordan. And uh, to the east, uh, towards the Mediterranean, you've got uh, Lebanon. Right. But our um, our closest major city is, of course, Aleppo in the north, mm. which, of course, everyone is uh, 
quite familiar with with what's been happening in Syria recently. Absolutely, seeing it in the news a lot and, you know, quite significantly destroyed. Tragically, because uh, Damascus and Aleppo, two of the world's most oldest and continuously inhabited cities, um, and Aleppo, um, before the conflict, was an incredibly well-preserved um, ancient city. In fact, the souk, the, 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 the bazaar, uh, was the best preserved of its, of its kind anywhere in the world. Um, and we know from um, the, the reports that uh, substantial parts of the ancient souk, the, the old city, have, have, have been um, but have been damaged. I mean, it's interesting to just mention that Melbourne universities had this long research association with Syria. And, and in fact, it began in the late 1970s when um, the Middle Eastern Studies Department then um, were looking for a research project, an excavation project. And it was Thomas McClellan, uh, an American uh, um, based at Melbourne who um, began the Al-Qatar project. And that uh, was a Bronze Age city, again in the Euphrates Valley, um, and they worked for several seasons um, at the invitation of the um, uh, Syrian Department of Antiquities. At that time, they were starting to construct hydroelectric dams on the rivers, uh, similar to what they were doing in Iraq and in Turkey. Um, and as a result of the, these major construction projects, there was going to be an inundation of uh, many archaeological sites. So these were rescue excavations. Um, so the Al Qatar project uh, uncovered a um, middle and late Bronze Age city, uh, heavily fortified but with domestic houses, um, and yielded some startling discoveries um, inscribed tablets, um, silver hoards, uh, well preserved architecture. Um, and so on. And then um, in the in the 1980s, the, the university went back again at the invitation for uh, salvage and rescue uh, projects and began the Talakma project, which was the one that I was very much involved in. That began in 1988. Um, and we were working at the site called Talakma, ancient Tilbasip. Interestingly, this site had been excavated by a French expedition in the late 1920s and the early 1930s um, under the auspices of the Louvre, um, directed by a very famous Assyriologist, Thuro uh, Francois Donjon, and they were there specifically looking for inscribed textual material, and they took seven metres off the top of the um, tell, the ancient mound. They didn't find the archive or the tablets that they that they were hoping for, but they did find a very well-preserved uh, mud brick neo-Assyrian palace with uh, frescoes, wall paintings, in the style of the great Assyrian capitals in places like Nimrud and, and, and Nineveh. So when we, when we went back in uh, the late uh, 1980s, uh, we didn't concentrate our excavations on the Acropolis. We worked in the middle and lower city areas. And uh, there we found, just below the surface, very, very well-preserved um, in-situ remains from the Neo-Assyrian period. Predominantly from the seventh century BC, um, elite houses, and within those houses, um, magnificent uh, carved ivories, um, a collection of cuneiform tablets, um, life-size basalt statues, subterranean uh, tombs—quite um, incredible—and um, uh, we, we were we were amazed at the at, 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 at the at the discoveries. And I should also mention the other research project that Melbourne University has been um, involved in, which is a joint research project with ANU, uh, directed by Professor Graham Clark and my colleague, Dr. Heather Jackson, which is a Hellenistic site known as Jebel Khalid. Um, and that 
project has also produced really interesting, um, important, significant material from the classical period. Um, in this area, so it just these these projects really reflect the uh, the richness, the, the the historical archaeological richness of this region, and of course, the Upper Euphrates Valley was an incredibly important um, area historically. Uh, it was a major corridor between southern Mesopotamia in southern Iraq up into Anatolia, uh, southeastern uh, Turkey, and across from Mesopotamia, Upper Mesopotamia, um, towards the uh, eastern Mediterranean. So Syria, of course has always been a crossroads and we find uh, right throughout history evidence of that important strategic role that Syria has played. That's fascinating. So in terms of the project that you were describing that you were involved in, that the French came across and and saw, got these seven metres worth of um, fines, did they take those back with them or did they leave them there? Well, of course, in the 1920s, 1930s, uh, there was um, an opportunity for foreign projects working in places like Syria to receive um, a uh, allocation of the fines. And in fact, if you go to the Louvre today, you will see some of the French discoveries on display in the Louvre Museum. Um, of course, uh, these days, um, projects aren't um, able to bring back uh, material, but in those salvage projects um, of the 1960s, 1970s and 1980s, the Department of Antiquities uh, very generously allowed um, projects like ours to bring back material predominantly pottery uh, as research collections. And uh, if you go to the exhibition at the Potter Museum, uh, you will see some of those items in this in this display. Absolutely. I mean, some of the pottery is really intact. Like there are, I think there's a, an arrangement of four particular pots that are very circular and um, beautiful, like elegant. And it was surprising to me when I saw them that they were so almost perfect. Yes, well, of course, pottery, uh, once fired, is almost indestructible and uh, survives incredibly well in the archaeological record. And of all those projects, Al-Qatar, Talakmar and Jebel Khalid, uh, they produced huge quantities of material, particularly ceramics. And uh, what you see in the exhibition are um, vessels that have been reconstructed from those from those archaeological discoveries. Yes. And what about some of the other um, pieces that are in the exhibition? Because it's not just um, pottery. There's a huge range of tools and implements that people had back then. And I guess it tells a story as to what life was like for those people in particular periods that this exhibition covers. Could you share with us some of um, the highlights for you as to what's included? Of course. So... The, the priority with the exhibition was to really highlight and um, put the spotlight on uh, the archaeological findings of the University of Melbourne um, through these research projects. So the material comes from um, El-Qatar, Talakmar and, and, and particularly Jebel Khalid. Uh, so there are archaeological fragments, as you've mentioned, ceramics, but there are also ancient metals, uh, bronze and iron. And of course, much of this mate- material is uh, material from everyday life, domestic uh, context. So they're the, the the things that were being used in these houses, whether from the Bronze Age, Iron Age or Hellenistic period uh, th- th- that you see. But the other priority with the exhibition was also to try and raise awareness about the situation in Syria. And we've done this through uh, the site of Palmyra. And there is a spectacular life-size uh, bust 
um, funerary stela from Palmyra uh, of a woman from the second century CE or AD, uh, the Roman period, um, and it carries a Syriac inscription and it mentions her name, Hagar, uh, and she's very um, delicately and elaborately carved and, and you would have seen that uh, she has an amazing um, uh, drapery and um, uh, j- jewellery yeah. and uh, reflecting her, her, her status um, and she's carved of marble and that object is on loan uh, from the Australian War Memorial. Um, but also in the exhibition relating to Palmyra is a wonderful folio, a, a very large uh, folio of um, uh, illustrations from 1753 uh, mm-hmm. from an um, expedition of antiquarians that visited Palmyra, of course Palmyra being one of the most iconic historical sites in Syria uh, and it has um, countless illustrations of the of the ruins, the triumphal arch, the tetrapylon, the temples, the funerary towers. Um, and so we can see that there has been a sort of, you know, a, a, a long uh, and a sustained interest in places like Palmyra that, of course, were incredibly important uh, caravan cities during the Roman period. And that was made famous by uh, the ruler of Palmyra, of course, Queen Zenobia, um, a very important historical figure. So let's talk a bit about that. Um about this queen in particular, because I do like women leading things and I'm really um, intrigued as to her involvement in Palmyra. Could you share that with us? So she um, assumed uh, the, the the rule of Palmyra after her uh, husband uh, passed away and she um, had ambitions to um, expand Palmyra's uh, sphere of influence um, and I think concerned uh Rome, and uh, there's uh, a, a number of accounts of what happened to Zenobia. Some reports have her being dragged back to Rome in chains. Um, others, uh, other, other, other reports uh, talk about her escaping uh, into the desert. But nevertheless, she was obviously a very um, powerful, uh, capable, and ambitious leader, uh, and of course intimately linked with this uh, this side of, of, of Palmyra. And of course, uh, with what's happened recently, Palmyra of course, has been, you know, a headline front page news because of the destruction of some of the monuments, the Triumphal Arch, the Temple of Baal and Belshaman um, and uh, other other uh, uh, ruins, including the, 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 the museum at Palmyra, which has been looted tragically. So, well, let's talk about that because IFs uh, or Daesh um, has been really the, the key reason as to why Palmyra has been looted and destroyed. Um, how much ha- damage have they actually done to this site? Uh, I think the damage is significant. Um, Palmyra was an incredibly well-preserved um, uh, city. It's not just, you know, uh, one one aspect. It's a complete Roman, Ro- Roman city. Um, and, of course, the destruction at Palmyra has been deliberate and targeted. And uh, IS or ISIS have uh, used the destruction of Palmyra as a form of propaganda, knowing that it will enrage uh, people uh, that... Because of its significance, it's one of uh, Syria's um, World Heritage listed uh, monuments and, uh, of course, it's guaranteed them um, a publicity. So it's been used as a tool of war Um, and, of course, tragically, as you would know, the director, the 81-year-old director of the Palmyra Museum, Dr Khalid al-Assad, was uh, um, publicly beheaded on the 18th of August in 2015 for not revealing to those um, 
uh, belligerence, the whereabouts of the important, significant, valuable items that had been taken off display in the Palmyra's museum and hidden for safe safekeeping. Well, that's a huge sacrifice, a noble sacrifice. Well, as a curator and as someone who has responsibility for an antiquities collection, we just see ourselves as being the gatekeepers. Mm. Um, I have objects in my collection that date back thousands of years and these, are, these items are precious and um, in some cases very delicate and, and, and fragile. And all we want to do is try and preserve and protect this cultural heritage. And you have here uh, with Harlard someone who had devoted his life to uh, the study, the uh, excavation, the interpretation and the conservation of one of Syria's most important cultural heritage sites who, uh, you know, lost his life trying to defend and, and, and protect that monument. Well, we have seen some of, as you say, well, these excavations and some of these important objects going out of the country for safekeeping. And in Melbourne we and Australia more broadly, we do have a great deal of these and some of these are in the exhibition. Um, in terms of how you approach archaeology on these sites and, and the dig, I guess, there are that those elements in the exhibition as well because we see the implements that are used um, and it's really fascinating to see the kind of soil charts and um, the different cameras that are being used and the notes that are being taken on the ground. Um, just how much of those uh, implements are still used in modern day archaeological digs um, and I guess what a little bit of the background Around, around them. So one of the reasons we put that material into this exhibition is because we didn't have um, a lot of objects. But I know from um, conversations, people are always interested in the process of archaeology. And of course, we still use today things like the brush and the trowel that have always been used. Um, but I think the exhibition highlights that much of the research, much of the recover, recovery, much of the extraction of Melbourne University's work in Syria happened in a pre-digital era, which was um, only became very apparent when we started putting this display together. And uh, I think that's uh, th th that's interesting to sort of uh, put it in into that historical context and, s and see it. So we have the notebooks and the um, various tools and equipments uh, that that... that, that that we use. But of course, today, uh, with mobile phones, with digital technology, uh, and archaeology has always been very quick to embrace these 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 devices um, we can we can contrast it uh, a, 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 and see the development but you will have also noticed in the exhibition there's a short clip about the reconstruction of the triumphal arch from Palmyra uh, which was created by the Institute of Digital Technology in London um, and erected in Trafalgar Square and they were able to bring that arch back using the uh, million images database which uh, people have sent in their photographs of uh, Palmyra and they've been able to stitch together all of these images and information and create a, a, a very accurate reconstruction. And we wanted to um, talk a little bit about that in the exhibition about you know, the use of modern technology in being able to restore or uh, reconstruct things that had been 
been damaged. And it's a, it's an area that I talk a lot about with my students. You, you mentioned um, having objects here in Australia and there's a lot of discussion about, you know, is that appropriate? Who has access? Who determines where objects go? Um, and you'll have also noticed in the exhibition the use of the tablets, those um, uh, screens that have images from our excavations, the most important images that went to the National Museum in Aleppo. And of course, that museum has also sustained uh, damage and looting as a result of the conflict. And of course, the current whereabouts of some of those objects is unknown. So the use of those electronic devices is a symbolic way of bringing them into the exhibition, but also highlighting that, in fact, um, in some cases, there may only be a digital record of some of that material because of the tragedy that's um, that's happening in Syria. It's a huge tragedy. Um, in terms of your... Uh, I guess, lifelong um, <laughs> interest in Syria, at, but also ancient Egypt and other areas. What um, what draws you to, and not talking about archaeology in partic- as, as such, but really what draws you to the objects and the, I guess, the human story behind it? Is that something that, that powers your passion um, for, for archaeology? And are there some kind of stories that particularly inspired you in your, in your searches? Um, a great question. And in, and in fact, uh, every day at the university in, in my teaching, I use objects. Um, I use object-based learning in every class. In fact, I was at, giving a lecture yesterday and I had an object in, in the lecture and in the tutorials this week, the students will be using objects. Objects are incredibly powerful transmitters of information. And even if you don't know a lot about the object or the culture, um, they provide a direct link with that past. And I am very fortunate in my job that I'm able to facilitate hands-on learning with um, the material in our collection at the university because it was very much created as a teaching and research collection. And I know that uh, this is a, a, a very um, valuable, um, fortunate opportunity for our students uh, that we're able to provide this. And we have now dedicated object-based learning laboratories in our new Arts West building at the University of Melbourne. It's a very nice building, by the way. <laughs> but I have students coming up to me on the tram five, seven years later saying, you won't remember me, but I remember the class where we had those objects and and um, it, it's a very, very powerful tool for, 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 teach, for teaching and learning. But I must say that um, I, I, I deal all the time with material culture. That's what archaeologists do. They dig up the, the rubbish, the refuse, the things that people leave behind. And even the single fragmentary pottery shirt has the potential to link us to that past and um, is, is, is embedded with, with, with information, which is what I find so interesting. But as a young, uh, as a very young person, of course, I was always engaged by great archaeological discoveries. And on Thursday at two o'clock, I will give the, the, a, a lecture to my first year students in ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia, which is, of course, on Tutankhamun, one of the greatest archaeological discoveries ever made, November 1922, Howard Carter peers through the small hole in KV62 in the Valley of the Kings with his patron, Lord Carnarvon, standing over his shoulder and says, what do you see? And he utters the words, gold, the glint of gold everywhere. Um, And of course, these are um, really powerful. And I think they have a a, a very strong um, uh, ability to engage us in a a way unlike other things. So I think that's the appeal of archaeology for me. Mm, The mystery as well and putting the pieces together literally and also metaphorically. Absolutely. And just finally, um, Andrew, 
In terms of um, what you were hoping, I guess, visitors to get from this exhibition and to really understand about Syria and its significance as a place um, of civilization, of great uh, advanced civilization across the ages, what um, what really, what story are you hoping to tell with this exhibition and what do you hope people will take away from it? So the exhibition was really to... Um acknowledge Melbourne University's research contribution to the Upper Euphrates Valley, but to also draw attention to the current conflict and raise awareness about the destruction of cultural heritage. When I went, when I first went to Syria in 1988, I encountered an incredibly um, uh, warm, hospitable country. The Syrians are, are unbelievably hospitable. And as you mentioned, it's an incredibly ancient, rich, but sophisticated land. Uh, this is where, you know, writing was invented. This is part of, you know, the cradle of civil so I'm hoping that people, visitors to the exhibition, will uh, form a greater understanding of the importance, the historical importance of uh, Syria and also um, be mindful that, you know, uh, we need to find a solution to this problem to try and prevent and uh, limit the, d- the destruction of cultural heritage in such an important country. And you are doing that um, via an international project, I believe. Yes. So um, as a response to a meeting in Basel, uh, the International Congress on the Archaeology of the Ancient Near East, a committee was formed called Shirin. And Shirin is made up of all foreign archaeologists that were working in Syria before um, April 2011, uh, when, the, when the conflict really shut down any archaeological research. And so through the expertise of those um, international archaeologists, we are trying to uh, produce um, damage assessment reports of all the archaeological sites that exist in Syria uh, to make information available on, on those places of archaeological and historical significance and also utilise that experience and expertise in anticipation of when the phase for reconstruction uh, and, and, and restoration uh, will, will, will begin. Well, let's hope that's really soon um, that we see an end to this conflict for the Syrian people, but also for these amazing objects and the history of their country. I hope so. And Amy, if anyone is interested, uh, the exhibition's on until the 27th of August. Uh, there's plenty of time. Uh, it's at the Ian Potter Museum of Art at the University of Melbourne. Um, important to, to mention it's the Potter at Melbourne University, not the Potter at Federation Square. Yes. And that we're also um, having a symposium um, from the 11th to the 13th of August, uh, where we will pre- be presenting papers on the ancient history and modern conflict uh, in Syria. That sounds amazing. <laughs> I'm going to have to put that in my diary. Um, and in terms of um, where the Ian Potter is situated, it's at the end of Swanson Street. So it's on the Parkville main campus, but it's very accessible via tram, isn't it? That's right. If you take any tram up uh, Swanson Street and get off at the University Melbourne Superstop, uh, it's on the left-hand side. Um, it's got uh, Christine McLaughlin's uh, cultural rubble hanging off the facade. Uh, you, you can't miss it. And the Classics and Archaeology Gallery is on uh, Level 1, uh, which is where you'll find the exhibition Syria, Ancient History, Modern Conflict. Amazing. Thank you, Andrew, for sharing your amazing insight and passion for this topic. It's just absolutely fantastic to have you. You're very welcome. And you are listening to 3 R. The show is Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins. And we're now going to be discussing a really important topic that uh, continues to be central to um, 
immigration policy in Australia and um, what we now term border protection. Uh, so we're going to chat with Mark Isaacs. He joins us on the phone and we'll be discussing his book, which was originally published in 2014, but which has been re-released by Hardy Grant uh, this year and uh, is slightly updated. Hi, Mark. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure. So, in terms of, um, I guess, the history of, of this book um, and why you wrote it in the first place and when it was, and its publishing in, in 2014, this really um, takes us back to a time under the Rudd-Gillard governments when regional, offshore regional processing was reopened or re-established uh, by Pr- Prime Minister Julia Gillard. Um, and and your story um, is is a unique one in the sense that you uh, volunteered um, for the Salvation Army to go over there um, to Nauru, to the Nauru Regional Processing Centre, um, to really support the asylum seekers' well-being. But as you say um, at the beginning of the book, there really wasn't a huge amount of direction provided um, by the Salvation Army and presumably even by the government to the Salvation Army. Um, Mark, in terms of why you wanted to get involved um, and volunteer in the first place. What really motivated you to get into this issue um, and then, you know, document uh, the issue as well? Okay, well, so it started way back about seven or eight months before I ever went to Nauru. I was actually only got involved to try and get a date with a girl. <laughs> <laughs> and it was um, it was very much, I was, a, I was a, just finished up at university and I was interning at Oxfam and, and a friend of, and, and this girl, uh, told me that her mother took people to Villawood Detention Centre uh, to visit asylum seekers. And at that point, I'd never met an asylum seeker, but I was very enthusiastic to, to try and meet this girl's mother to try and get a date. That's a very <laughs> interesting way in. I'm impressed. <laughs> uh, it didn't work. as, <laughs> um, But I did visit Villawood Detention Centre in Sydney. And, uh, you know, without really knowing the politics of it all at that point in time, I couldn't understand... Uh, why we were keeping people uh, in detention for for years on end without giving them an answer about whether they were refugee or not and whether we would offer them protection or not. Uh, And I came out of that visit to Villawood Detention Centre confused as to why we treated these people like criminals, uh, why they were essentially in what was a jail uh, and the the length of time as to, you know, detaining them there. Uh, And... Thanks, well, luckily or unluckily, depending which way you want to look at it, I was given the opportunity a number of months later when the Salvation Army were hiring people to, to go to Nauru. And I, saw, and I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to help people. I thought that this would be a way to, you know, to, to go to a place where I was sure um, it would be difficult for these people, um, these people who were seeking asylum, because with, you know, within few hours of being in Villa Detention Centre, I was exhausted um, and emotionally drained at the hopelessness. Uh, and so that's what motivated me in, at, the, at the beginning to, to originally go to Nauru. Well, then when you, you get there, I mean, it's a very fast turnaround um, from when you express interest to when you actually arrive. I think it was a week turnaround, which is pretty fast in terms of life changes. Um, but how how big was this for you and how much of a shock was it when you arrived in terms of um, the economic situation of Nauru itself, um, but also the, the phys- I guess, physical conditions? Yeah, so I don't think anything could have prepared me for that. And, uh, you know, we, we went over there with very little training, no training 
the only training we received was on how to not speak to a journalist, essentially. Uh, and we, we didn't have any kind of idea of who these people were or where they'd be coming from. We didn't get any education as to uh, how to deal with these people from these, you know, very different cultures to what we were usually experiencing in Australia. Uh, we were not given any idea of what would, what to do if someone was mentally um, uh, yeah, mentally unwell or had, um, you know, voiced the idea that they wanted to kill themselves. Uh, and, you know, having now worked in with refugees and asylum seekers for five years now, um, that is an essential part of, of your training, and we didn't get that. And so we arrived on this island after, you know, enthusiastic but extremely naive and um, inexperienced. Uh, and my situation was not uncommon. You know, there were 18-year-olds and university students, McDonald's workers. Um, even the, you know, one middle-aged woman didn't know what an asylum seeker was before arriving there. Uh, and so we we arrived on this very small island. It's 10,000 people on the island. Uh, it's 20 minutes around by car. It's extremely poor. It relies the country relies on Australian aid and international aid to, I guess, support the economy. Uh, and you know, as beautiful as the island is, um, when you move to the centre of the, the island, uh, the vegetation kind of dies away, and that's the kind of graveyard of of phosphate rock where the phosphate's been mined out, and you're just left with these pinnacles of rock. And that's the hottest part of the island. It's you know reaches over 30 degrees up to 40 degrees um, and with extremely high humidity. Uh, and that's where they put the people who were detained in the detention centre there. And, and when we... Yeah. Go ahead. Well, when we went into the, the, the camp, uh, we found, you know, we were, we were sent in there with an encouragement to go out and help the men. Uh, and we walked into a camp where there were men in, sleeping in uh, on stretcher beds in tents uh, in this extremely difficult physical conditions uh, in a very small space with a mix of ethnicities and nationalities and religions, uh, none of them speaking the same language. Uh, and uh, they, the first questions they asked us were, how long are we going to be here for? Wh- where is this place? What are we doing here? What will happen to us? And we didn't have any idea what we could say to them. And even now, you know, five years on, even though the people have changed, there's still no real idea of what will happen to those people. And let's um, reiterate that it's men only at this at this um, particular offshore processing centre in Nauru. Well, well, when I first arrived in, in September 2012, there were only men sent to Nauru. Uh, in 2013, a month after the detention centre was burnt down in a, in a, a riot, uh, they started to send men and women into tent accommodation again. Mm. Uh, so there are now men and women and children uh, on the island. Um, yeah. Yes, and and so really it was during... But during your time, was it predominantly male? It was only male. Only male. There, yeah. So... Yeah. In terms of the, I guess, diversity within that male population, because as you say, there is a huge amount of diversity of circumstance, um, but also cultural background and religion. Um, Were there, I guess, any forms of cohesion between the different ethnic groups or did were people um, kind of more feeling more safe or comfortable within their own um, national groups? Yeah, so there was definitely cohesion between some of the men, uh, but that was mainly dependent on whether they could share a common language. Um, not entirely, but mainly. Uh, there were examples of people who could, you know, uh, bridge that, that gap through body language and, 
um, just, I guess, a shared humanity. Uh, but in most instances, it was uh, people were divided by their ethnicity and by their nationality and by their language groups. So the Iraqis would tend to associate with the Iraqis and the Iranians would tend to associate the Iranians and the Tamils would associate with the Tamils, the Tamil Sri Lankans, that is, and the Sinhalese Sri Lankans would associate with the Sinhalese Sri Lankans generally. Mm. Um, but there was crossover and one of the roles I tried to play in the camp was to, uh, I guess, develop and build that harmony between not only ethnic groups but the uh the local Maroons and the and the men and that was through organizing activities um that were excursions out of the camp uh that were cricket tournaments and football tournaments that would uh you know music concerts that would bring people together and and associate despite their ethnic differences or religious or um, language differences. Yeah, I mean, to find common ground and also to relieve some of the, I guess, physical tension because... um, as you say in the book, it really is a very small, um, confined space um, that these men were living in, and um, there was very little chance within there in that area to be able to, I guess, relieve tension and energy by through exercise or or activities, um, and. And in your efforts to, I guess, engage um, these men and, and to kind of, I guess, make life slightly more, um, <laughs> it's hard to, to find a positive element, but slightly more bearable. Um, what were some of the things that you found particularly effective when you were engaging um, with the men? And what really um, opened your eyes to um, who they were deep down um, as, as humans? Oh, so the the activities that really resonated with not just with the men but with the the workers because it allowed the workers, you know, my colleagues and I to, um, I guess, relieve the tension on us as well. But it was very early on we we saw that people just needed to to take their minds away from the pressures of the camp and give themselves something else to think about uh, or at least to distract themselves from the you know the the constant wondering of what will happen to me and what will happen to my family and that was you know the uh the football tournaments and the cricket tournaments where men would become so infused with the the statistics and they would always come up to me and you know say we actually won by by 17 runs and you said we run by 16 runs and um but one of the my most vivid memories was taking the men down to the ocean uh for uh a swim and it was the first time they'd been allowed to go into the water uh because apparently it was dangerous for them to step on coral or uh you know they could they cut their feet or whatever uh but this one particular moment we were allowed to jump in the ocean uh, and you could see the men physically change you could see them smile for the first time and you could see them uh laugh and uh their faces lit up uh, and often we saw that on these excursions. The minute they left their camp, the, the, the camp, they would start singing, they would dance in the aisles, it would be this joyous occasion for a few hours. Um, but the sad part of those excursions was that that was always temporary, uh, and there was always the knowledge that they would have to return, and when they did return, you could see them set their frowns and you could see them, uh, the gloom kind of take over. And I remember one of the men said here we are returning to hell uh and another man i remember uh as we entered the camp he started smacking himself on the head and i said what are you doing and he said i'm trying to prepare myself to go back inside 
So we're really talking about people who've lost a lot of hope because um, they're not sure what's going to happen and why they're there in the first place because they um, thought that their their claims would be processed within a fairly efficient time frame um, and that, that they possibly could go to Australia. Um, at that point, there hadn't been that... Um, that policy whereby, uh, it, you know, that was completely blocked off as an, as an option, had it been? Well, so it was, it was very much unknown uh, in, uh, in Nauru at that time. And uh, they were told that it would take years. Um, I remember one decree, the, the uh, Department of Immigration officials came in and said it, it will take at least five years. And we later learned that that had no kind of basis in truth or um, or evidence. They just came in to say that as a way to um, to promote this idea that they were being punished, and this was a deterrence policy. And the idea was that uh, to try and convince people to return to the countries that they were uh, fleeing from, or uh, or tell their loved ones not to come this way either. Uh, and so that is essentially the idea. And uh, the concept of that is that, you know, I remember asking a man, why, why do you stay here when it's so horrible? And he said that we have a pinprick of light in this sea of darkness, and that's hope. And it's the hope that we will get to Australia uh, and be able to have safety and protection and be able to take our loved ones there. Uh, and so if the purpose of this camp and this deterrence policy is to try and convince people to return in order to do that you have to eliminate that hope and so the the whole process of this these camps is the destruction of hope and when that happens uh people are left with a few options they can either wait there interminably without any idea of what will happen to them they can return to the persecution they're fleeing from, or many men turn to the, you know, the utter hopelessness of, of a suicide attempt. And I know that this is something that you encountered um, quite a bit when you were there, not only suicide attempts, but various forms of self-harm and protest. And I guess in terms of your role and how you needed to or were directed to deal with these kind of situations, um, what was... What was your role in that, and how did how equipped were you to be able to deal with these situations where people are really deeply in despair and also suffering from um, mental health issues? You know, how did you deal with that, and um, and how much did that, uh, I guess, enlighten you in terms of um, your own ways of dealing with um, the emotional toll of of working in these kind of um, this kind of environment? Yeah, sure. So very early on, I mean, from the very start, we realized that uh, there was no job description. We weren't given a job description or a mission brief, and uh, our roles were made up as we went along. Because keep in mind that we, I arrived a week or two after the camp was first opened, and the Salvation Army had never done anything like this before, as far as I was aware. And so they didn't have guidelines to follow or procedures to follow. Uh, and so when we arrived, the first... Um, attempts of self-harm and suicide attempts occurred very early on, you know, in the first few weeks even. Um, uh, And it's very difficult when you're an inexperienced, um, unqualified uh, worker there who's never been educated on how to to deal with these kind of things to understand what to do. And so the natural, or I guess to understand what to professionally do, and so the natural instinct 
was to comfort the people and to listen to them and to talk to them and understand their grievances. Uh, and although we couldn't uh, do anything practically in terms of, you know, because their main grievance was that they, they were locked in a prison without any idea of what would happen to them. And there was nothing practical that we could do, but we could sit with them. Uh, and so in that sense, we very quickly became close with these people because it's impossible to hear, or I think it's impossible to hear, people suffering and to not care for them or not want to help them or not want to alleviate that suffering and to, um, yeah, and, and you know, the, some parts of politics will say that's a weakness, but I think that's an extreme strength. And I think it's a testament to the, the people I worked with that we endured uh, through proxy the, and, you know, vicariously the, the trauma that they were suffering, these people were suffering. And, uh, you know, what do you say? What do you say to the man who is sitting in front of you, my good friend Pez, who had just uh, attempted to hang himself in a laundry and had, you know, burns around his neck and, and scars on his wrists and trying to slash his wrists when he says, don't worry about me. I don't have anything to, to live for, but I don't have anything to die for either. What do you, you know, what do you say to that? There's not, you know, there's no, I guess in some ways there's no kind of professional assistance that can help you deal with those kind of traumas. And so we, in talking about that with my colleagues and trying to come to terms with what we were seeing, um, you know, we did have mental health guidance provided by the Salvation Army, but there was an extreme amount of pressure uh, within the whole professional environment in Nauru to not speak about these kind of things uh, because you were under deeds of confidentiality and to, to, you signed and, and, and contracts that said that you can't talk to anyone about anything that happens in the camp for all time. And you were in a place where, you know, there was rivalry between security guards and, and welfare workers. And so you relied heavily upon your immediate colleagues, the people around you to talk to you because you can talk to your loved ones at home. Uh, and so one way that I dealt with it uh, was to write, it, uh, you know, and, and after one particular incident uh, where a friend of mine, I, I, I found him in the back of a, an ambulance when I came into work one day and he'd attempted suicide. And when I came into the camp, the men accused me of it being my fault. And they said, you know, you are responsible for this man's suicide attempt because you didn't do enough to help him. Uh, and so I walked out of the camp feeling extremely upset uh, not at them and not at the way they talked to me, but because I realised that they were right. And they weren't accusing me of it being my fault. They were saying it was the Australian people's fault and I was the face of the Australian people and that we hadn't done enough for these men. Uh, and I realised at that point that although as, as much as I wanted these people to be my friends, they weren't. I was the jailer and they were the prisoners and there was always that power imbalance because I could always leave the camp and they were stuck there. You know, I could leave when it was became too... Uh, emotionally draining or overwhelming and so I started to write and that's how I came to terms with the traumas that I was seeing uh, and that eventually led to those writings eventually led to the book and in terms of then your I guess grappling with a certain level of complicity in the sense that you're in this system that is run by by um, the government how did you I guess um, deal with that um, sense of uh, I guess loyalty or affiliation and friendliness with um, the people there, the asylum seekers, but then also the fact that you are at a distance and that you are really separate from them. And and also, did you question, I guess, your your involvement? 
yeah, I mean, we, we questioned our involvement daily, you know, this this idea that we felt guilty about being part of a system that subjected people to such uh, ill treatment. Uh, but at the same time, we we thought that we could do good from within the system and, and we thought, that, you know, the best way to change the system is from within. Uh, and so we struggled with that daily and we tried to affect change um, and we tried to be you know, a, a supporter of the men from within the camp. Uh, but unfortunately, we were accused of treason, of, uh, you know, of being on their side, of not supporting our employer, the Salvation Army, of not supporting the government. Uh, and so uh, eventually that that pressure just builds up and it builds up and it builds up and you see a system that's designed around treating these people poorly. Uh, and in when that people are put into that system, they start to treat people poorly because they think that's what you're supposed to do. Uh, and we, you know, outside of the whole deterrence methods and the, the indefinite detention, individuals would then assume the role that they needed to treat people poorly. They would lie about incidences to, to get asylum seekers in trouble. They would uh, physically uh, harm uh, asylum seekers, or at least there were claims there were. Uh, and so, you know, it... it it put a huge amount of pressure on us and that was eventually what led to me quitting because I saw that the system was designed to uh, uh, to, to treat people as less than humans. Mm. I'm talking to Mark Isaacs, author of The Undesirables Inside Nauru. Um, now, Mark, in terms of you leaving, when was that? Um, at what point, in, in terms of your, your, your journey there, how long were you there for and, and when did you decide to leave? So I, was, I started uh, in Nauru in September 2012 and left in June 2013. Uh, and that's just before the July 2013 riot. That is indeed yes. So I, um, you know that that there was that constant pressure the whole time of uh, of of working there that you just didn't want to be there. And I remember the first time I left, I asked one of the men. I said, "Do you would you prefer me to 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 try and do something from Australia or, or come back and work here?" And they said every time they said, "Come back." We want you guys to be here uh, because they were worried that they'd be forgotten and they were worried that uh, we would all leave, um, which I guess was almost inevitable that we would leave. And uh, and so, but they got to a point, you know, where the pressure got too much and as one of my friends said, we just got sick of the bullshit. We just got sick of the lies and the, the secrecy and uh, people not knowing what was happening. You know, when I, we came, I came back after four weeks in Nauru, uh, the first four weeks, and, you know, it was November 2012, so nobody knew what was going on in the camp. Nobody knew what was happening, and I got to a party in Australia, I was 24 at the time, and people in the party said, how was Nauru? You know, music blaring, everyone dancing and drinking, and it was a very surreal moment, and I just said, oh, it was good. <laughs> because how do you begin to yeah. explain everything that you've just been through after... You know, when you think of the world that most young adult Sydney siders live in. And so uh, it was only through showing people my writing that I understood, that they understood kind of what I was talking about and I could really talk about it well. And so uh, I realised that I had a window into this dark and mysterious world that people uh, weren't allowed to, to know about. You know, even though we 
Australians are paying for it. Uh, uh, but that wasn't, you know, the, the, the final straw that, that I guess made me resign was when I was contacted while off Ireland by Julian Burnside. Uh, and he said that he was leading a uh, case against the Nauru government um, that said that the men in Nauru were being detained uh, unlawfully uh, and that it was, you know, they were being detained uh, without cause, without due cause. So this... this uh, basic principle of law called the habeas corpus. Uh, and so he said that they were going to um, leave this case and that a Wilson security uh, manager had made a statement that said that the defences in Nauru were not there to keep the men in, they were there to protect the men from the, uh, uh, from the construction. And he said that the excursions that I had established were examples of the freedoms that the men enjoyed. You know, and those excursions were established to, to, you know, alleviate the mental pressure, mental stress of indefinite detention. And I found it too much. I couldn't allow that to happen. That the, you know, the things that we'd established to help the men were being used against them. And so I decided that I would also speak in court. Um, and so then, once I did that, I had said that I was going to quit. I didn't want to continue working for an organisation, the Salvation Army, who didn't stand up for the for the men. Yeah. So in terms of then um, where we're at at the moment, because um, let's just mention also that Julian Burnside um, has written the introduction um, or the forward to this uh, latest edition. It's an excellent um, forward because it really sets out, I guess, the history of this issue, but also, um, and particularly in relation to Nauru, but also where we're at at the moment. And I'd like to get to that, where where we're at. Are you aware of um, what has happened to the majority of those asylum seekers who were there when you were there? Yeah, so uh, the majority of the men I worked with, 99%, I, I can only think of one or two who were still remain in detention, but the majority of them are now in Australia. Uh, on bridging visas, uh, having applied for their uh, refugee protection visas and awaiting for answers from the government, awaiting for interviews with the government uh, to decide that. Uh, most of them are working um, uh, or have the opportunity to work now. Uh, there is, I can sell off individual stories. Uh, there was one man on the island who, uh, while we were on island, while we were on island, attempted suicide numerous times. I think three from memory, and he was eventually transferred to Australia to be in a mental hospital uh, because there were no facilities like that in Nauru. Uh, and he eventually elected to return home, which I guess is the ultimate goal of the policy, uh, because he couldn't take the mental pressure. And we have no idea what happened to him. Uh, very few men that I worked with returned home due to the deterrence methods. Uh, the majority endured the conditions and then were eventually transferred to Australia. Uh, and they, the one example, one one great story is of, uh, of Salah, who's in the book, and he uh, has since arrived. He's working. He has a great job. He lives with his uncle, and when I came to visit him in his hometown, he picked me up in Adelaide in his uncle's BMW. <laughs> <laughs> and he's doing really well. Uh, but That's great. That constant, constant fear that they could be returned home. 
mm. the, the countries that they're fleeing from um, at any moment. And having just been to Afghanistan and investigated what's with the Edmund Rice Centre, the uh, government deportations of Afghans to, to Kabul, it's not safe. It's a dangerous country. Yeah. It's still a war zone and the Taliban are still very much um, in control in many areas. Yeah, exactly. You know, And, uh, you know, when we were there, I was there just recently, there were five attacks in Kabul in uh, the three weeks I was there. Uh, you know, it's the idea that you can return people there safely is, it's uh, ludicrous. Mm. Well, let's hope that um, that those who are eligible receive their humanitarian visas um, and and find ways to recover from the, I guess, um, their experiences that have really been hugely um, traumatising for some un- and understandably so. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the, the tragedy is that, you know, I have guys there who are extremely traumatised from what happened down in Nauru. Uh, my second book, Nauru Burning, details uh, a fire that burnt down the detention centre in July 2013. Many of the men can't talk about it. They were too traumatised by it. Mm. You know, and they've talked to me about incidences in their home countries, but they're too traumatised by what happened in Nauru. Many of the, my colleagues who talked to me about the fire said it was the worst thing they'd ever seen in their life. Yeah. You know, um, it's just such a tragedy that we subjected these people to these awful conditions and then they ended up in Australia anyway. And, you know, how long will it take them to get over this this uh, experience? Yeah. Well, this, certainly this policy solution is not working um, and it's hugely costly in many regards. Um, Mark, thank you very much for joining us and sharing your experiences, which um, everyone can actually check out in those two books that you've written um, and the one we've been discussing that covers that time where you were in uh, at the Nauru Regional Processing Centre is The Undesirables Inside Nauru, which has just been re-released with a forward from Julian Burnside QC. Um, thanks, Mark. And, and if people want to keep up with what you're doing, um, they can check out your website and social media. Yes, they can indeed. MarkJIsaacs.com and Mark Isaacs on social media. Awesome. Thanks for joining us, Mark, and hope you have a good Thank one. You. Thank you. Um, I now have a, a very special and fantastic guest with us who um, is a senior and honorary fellow at the Victorian College of the Arts. It's Dr. Janine Burke, and she joins us to discuss an article um, which she's written, and it, you can find it on the University of Melbourne webpage. We've also just retweeted it um, on our Twitter, which is Uncommon Sense 3R. So um, please do have a read. But uh, in the meantime, thanks for joining us, Janine. Thank you very much, Amy. It's wonderful to have you and also just wonderful to see your um, long-time involvement in the arts in many ways. It seems like you've had a really um, amazing career. I think I've been really fortunate. When I was an undergraduate student, um, art history student at the University of Melbourne, I came across Kiffy Rubo, uh, who was running the George Payton Gallery, and she offered me a lot of opportunities. She had a lot of faith in me, and... Uh, I got the opportunity to curate this amazing exhibition, Australian Women Artists, 1840 to 1940, back in 1975. And it was was sort of the first real history of Australian women in the arts. So it was uh, was great to work with Kiffy and have those kinds of opportunities, you know, as a young curator and art historian. 
Absolutely. I mean, George Payton Gallery, it's um, it's very well known. It's, it's actually situated at Union House at the University of Melbourne. Um, and it's really, I guess, it's it's had a huge and interesting history itself. Mm. But in particular, with this exhibition, um, which was put on in 1975 and which you, um, which was commissioned by Kiffy, um, that is a really interesting time period, 1840 to 1940. I mean, what kind of artists, Australian women artists, were included in that exhibition? Well, as I found out, you know, when I began doing <laughs> researching the exhibition, because there was so little known about women artists, or the picture hadn't been sort of filled in, you know, there was a yeah. kind of a blank, it seemed like there was a blank canvas. And people would say to me, who are you putting in this show? I mean, there's, you know, there just aren't that many women artists. I mean, well, there's Margaret Preston and there's this one or that one, but that's not a whole exhibition. So it was quite fascinating to go out there and discover the works by women artists. Uh, in some of the major state galleries, which weren't often hanging on the walls. They were down in, like, the basement, you mm. know, what they call the stacks, where the sort of... Typical. The second or third-rate works get stuck, you know. And so I found, you know, down there excavating, if you like, um, a, a history of, of women's visual culture in Australia and uh, finding these marvellous paintings that I couldn't believe weren't on the walls, you know. Uh, particularly in the late 19th century, uh, the, the Heidelberg School era here in, in Melbourne, because uh, women were members of the Heidelberg School, which, you know, has, has gone kind of unnoticed for a long time. Clara Southern and Jane Sutherland and May Vale and a whole group of women artists who were very active in Melbourne in the late 19th century and were taking on sort of powerful cultural roles, like the Victorian Artist Society was like the culture club, you know, for the visual arts in, in Melbourne in the late 19th century and and all these women were on the council you know they had uh, determining roles in in the sort of contemporary culture of their day which was really fascinating to kind of link into the the larger culture say at the Heidelberg school yeah absolutely and one of those um artists that you just mentioned there Jane Sutherland um Mm -hmm. you do mention in this article um it's called the mushroom gatherers and uh, it was in the stacks at the National Gallery of Victoria and you had a really funny and interesting story of an encounter with a, as you say, silent, grumpy curator at the NGV. <laughs> um, what was your experience in that particular scenario? Well, I found that um, uh, there was some resistance to doing the exhibition at all because it revised, A, it was revising Australian art history and B, um, we were coming at it from a feminist perspective. So there was kind of like, you know, go away, who do you think you are sort of stuff going on. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, People just kind of rejecting the whole notion um, of the notion of the exhibition. Anyway, there I was with this curator and I found this stunning landscape painted by Jane Sutherland in around 1895. And um, I'm like, oh my God, this is so beautiful, it's fabulous, I've got to have it for the exhibition, but it needs conservation. And he's like, well... If it has conservation, well, it's going to be in conservation for like a year, so you can't have it for your show, and then you can't have it for your show anyway because it's in such a mess, you know, so it's like this Catch-22. It was just, um, it was a process of trying to kind of push away, I think, this kind of energetic feminist agenda Mm. um, that was arising culturally, and not just culturally, but politically right across the board, you know, in the 1970s, and, uh, you know, finally that work was restored, and now, you know, it's usually hanging in great glory on the walls of the National Gallery of Victoria. That's amazing. And that mm. would be in the, the Federation Square National Gallery, yes, wouldn't it? exactly, yeah. Um, yeah, 
That's right. And if people um, want to, I guess, get some context as to um, who the men were who were getting the attention as opposed to um, Jane Sutherland, who were clearly her peers, but they were, they were out there getting the limelight, who were they? Well, Tom Roberts, um, you know, Arthur Streeton, Fred McCubbin. Uh, and because, they see, the, the problem for them was, you know, the guys went out and they'd spend weekends camping in the bush and painting and, and finding various places to stay. And, of course, the lady of the, <laughs> the late 19th century mm. couldn't go out camping in the book with je- bush with gentlemen. That was really quite uh, not done at all. So they'd have to go, you know, Jane and, and Clara and all these other women artists, they'd have to tramp back home again at the end of the day. So I suppose they didn't seem like they, they weren't as visible as the men were and and naturally, of course, unfortunately naturally, that the, the critics and writers of the time just focused on the men. And the women, even though they were active and prominent at the end of the 19th and early 20th century, I mean, they just got written out of history. Yeah, it's quite shocking. And they were, were they pla- painting on plein air, as in outside? Yeah. yeah, yeah, they were doing, they were hanging out with the guys. I mean, um, um, James Sutherland and Clara Southern shared a studio uh, at, at number five Collins Street, Grosvenor Chambers, where Tom Roberts has had his studio. And they were very friendly. You know, they were all good mates at that time. Mm. But then the process of historicising, you know, the period comes along and that's when the sexism comes in, that women are regarded as a second rate or, or just invisible. And how much do you think we've actually rectified this in terms of that particular Heidelberg school and the women involved there? I think that's been a really positive kind of outcome for women artists, that they, there have been exhibitions of the, the women artists of the Heidelberg School and essays and various kind of public commentaries on them. But, you know, we have, we have to keep the flame alive. We have to keep reminding everybody that these women do actually exist and they played an important cultural role, mm. you know, in Australian art in that era. And it is somewhat revealing that they're not necessarily the household names that we do know of. Exactly. They're still very much in, in an art world context. Yet I always find when there's something about women artists of that period or an exhibition or, say, just this article, you know, that I wrote for the website, the VCA website, it just gets this huge response because people are still, women themselves, women artists, I think, are still, you know, longing for that, um, that history and that kind of recognition and that visibility uh, of their sort of, their, their grandmother artists, you know, of the, of the decades past. Absolutely. And one of the, the quotes that I really um, find revealing in your, uh, your piece is towards the beginning and it says, um, I would estimate it is twice as difficult to maintain the reputation of a woman artist as that of a man. I wish I didn't have to say that, but experience has taught me otherwise. I mean, why, uh, what ways can we actually address this? Because, I mean, one of the examples um, that you later give is about Joy Hester and... Mm. I had not heard of Joy Hester and I studied art history and continue to, um, which so I was quite ashamed. But when I was at the Heidi, uh, walking through Heidi number one, which is the um, the property at the front, which is kind of like their house, um, mm-hmm. there was this just amazing Joy Hester painting in the hallway and uh, I just stopped and it really stood out to me um, and actually impressed me more than some of um, the works by the men in that uh, same house, such as Sidney Nolan. 
Allen. Mm-hmm. Um, what what kind of contribution did some of these later women artists in the in the later or mid to late part of the um, the twentieth century? offer and because I mean you talk about them in in the piece and and how their personal life interfered with their artistic life as well as supported it. I think that's always a challenge for women um, because they may wish to have children and start a family at the same time they're trying to continue with their artistic practice and have regular exhibitions which is really a kind of long-term and pretty grueling sort of process. So I think that women, uh, you know, Joy Hester stands out amazingly as as somebody who was very tough about what she wanted to do with her work. Of course, she died very young. You know, she died of cancer uh, in 1960 when she was only 40 years of age. But she produced this extraordinary oeuvre. And, you know, when I started work on it um, back in the late 70s, uh, it had never been sort of catalogued. There was no overview of her work, you know. I mean, Sunday and John Reed did the best they could in supporting her and showing her work. Um, but, you know, when the, the boys came along, you know, Tucker and Nolan and Boyd and Percival, we don't even need to give their first names. Mm. Um yeah, I mean, Hester is part of that, again, I think, in an, in an art historical art scene. But uh, that's very really disappointing that you did a course and you didn't know anything about her. Absolutely. Well, I mean, it's funny that even um, when, you, when you say here that you interviewed several of her male colleagues, um, their response was, Bert's girlfriend, um, you're writing a book about Bert's girlfriend. And that uh, that is reference to Albert Tucker um, mm. and who she was married to, who was also, mm. and everyone, many would know, if not all our listeners would have heard of Albert Tucker. I mean, how women are being, I guess, defined by their partners here. They're very much more mm. um, famous partners at the time, presumably. Um, mm. And is that, you know, one reason why they've been shadowed I think so, and I think we need to... I think one of the good things that uh, feminism does and, and uh, gender kind of... An interrogation of a, of a creative couple through the prism of gender I think is a very valuable one because what we do see is how women can get overshadowed and how they can be kind of... Not, not complicit, I'm not blaming them, but they kind of step back from the limelight often that the men get into and they don't kind of have the same degree of support um, in the art scene certainly not in Joy Hester's time and you know she writes to her women artist friends like Yvonne uh, Lenny who married Arthur Boyd and Mary uh, Boyd who married John Percival and saying look look, girls you know you've got you need guts and determination you really have to fight you know and uh, she saw her women artist friends disappearing during the 1940s they just weren't there uh, and unfortunately, the following decade, the 50s, was just terrible for women artists after the Second World War. Just dreadful. So it's really taken the kind of feminist enterprise of the 1970s to really, you know, yeah, really interrogate um, kind of cultural norms and the status quo. So we keep looking at gender bias and, and gender balance all the time. And look, it gets boring, you know. It's really boring <laughs> my age but absolutely why are we still talking about this and having to do it talking about it but obviously we need to and and your response to my article is to you know talk about it with men so there's energy and interest created through that which 
indicates, you know, we still need to do more work, doesn't it? Definitely. And one of the more recent developments um, is the Women Abstract Artists uh, exhibition, which is currently at the Geelong Gallery. Yeah, yeah. yeah we, uh, we interviewed um, the curator of that on the show uh, probably three or four weeks ago now. I think it was um, just before International Women's Day. Mm-hmm. And that was one example to me um, of really re- establishing uh, Mm. that there were significant women who were actually trailblazers in the Mm. art world. doesn't matter about whether they were men or women, although there were many factors which hampered their ability to do things, but they were legitimately um, peers of and sometimes better than uh, their male peers, Um, but maybe not as commercially successful and Mm. um, certainly, as you say, took a step back at times in terms of um, the prices that they asked for with their Mm. paintings and the promise that they gave them in shows. Mm-mm. But if we get to now, and I guess the the point here, which is, has anything changed? I mean, I'd really love to hear what you think about what has changed and what hasn't changed for women artists now. Well, I, I suppose I'll start off with the sort of the depressing comment that fundamentally I don't think a lot of things have changed. And I think there's still an attitude that women artists aren't going to make the distance like men are going to make the distance. And, I mean, you just pick up a catalogue for, say, one of the auction houses in Melbourne. I mean, there's hardly ever a woman in any of those Mm. big, important sales. But it's the same guys all the time, you know, Jeffrey Smart, John Olsen, you know. Um, They're the ones who, who the collectors are investing in. You know, in a way, they're not investing in women artists of the same generation. And those works are there, though, aren't they? Yeah, those works are there, exactly. But uh, it's okay. So that's the negative, you know, and it's very real and it's right in your face. Um, But I think the positive is that women, you know, they've kind of banded together in a way, in the way we did in the 70s. There are lots of sort of networks and connections that go on uh, amongst younger women artists which I think is really great. I'm always very supportive and encouraging of them. Um, so they recognise the problems and they're kind of working through them together. Um, so I would say that, the, you know, the art world is so much bigger than it was in the 1970s. I mean, it's huge now. Back then it was like quite a small community. And I think there are women artists at every level of that. But do they, in the end, gain the same uh, attention as men? Not often, No. Mm. Do they gain the same prices? Sometimes. I mean, you look at really major artists like Patricia Piccinini, for example, who would certainly be commanding very high prices for her work. Yes, but in in terms of, I guess, um, there is the art world, which is a a really... A true living, breathing world, and then <laughs> I know world. it's quite disturbing for people to understand that when we say art world, it's not necessarily metaphorical; it's really real. Mm. Um, but also, just I guess the uh, the broader public and the public public's awareness of um, women artists uh, as opposed to men artists, and I guess the coverage that they get, uh, as well as the hanging space in public galleries. Do you think there are ways that we can um, combat that or approach that with a particular way of seeing? I think one of the ways is just really basic sort of activism of of talking and writing to curators and and directors of galleries and saying we feel that women are not being represented sufficiently, you know, in such 
such and such a program, maybe it's the National Gallery of Victoria or Yarko Gallery New South Wales. I think you just have to keep reminding people. Um, I think the broader public is actually keen to know a lot more than it gets, you know. Definitely. Um, I think there's a, a willingness on, on the part of the broader public. But, you know, like any world, as you say, the art world is a, is a living world, um, there are lots of hierarchies, and often women don't get included in the upper echelons of those hierarchies, you know, as, as uh, d- directors of uh, major museums. Or, you know, we've got a wonderful example in Sue Baker, who's the director of the Victorian College of the Arts. Uh, and on a trustee of the National Gallery of Victoria and is an artist. So, you know, Sue is one of those extraordinary women who have uh, developed that. And I think that women need to see other women in those roles. You know, they need to look at them and say, wow, that's fantastic. She's really achieved a great deal. And, you know, Sue is a feminist and so she's very aware of all these issues. Absolutely. And yeah, a role modelling is, is a really big thing. It's I mean, important. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it it's kind of seems like a very benign uh, thing, but it's actually one of the most important, but I guess immeasurable um, mm. factors in terms of influencing um, women and, and their um, prominence and, and mm. the awareness of them. And the thing I, I'd like to mention is that the, the Heidi um, put on an exhibition, Making Modernism, um, and we interviewed the curator, and that was one of their most um, popular shows mm. that they've put on, and people just were in awe of these amazing artists mm. who just happened to be women. Um, yeah. And it was great because I, I got to see Grace Cossington-Smith, who is just amazing. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and this is something which I think um, we should continue to bring um, art from really disparate collections to make sure that we do represent the women who whose artwork is either in the stacks or in private collections um, where they're not being seen as much mm. as they should. Mm. Yes, I think it's important to keep revisiting, you know, um, and going back to... And that's how art history, you know, progresses kind of as a, as a living thing and as a discipline that, you know, you go back to the 20s or the 30s or the 40s. You know, there's a big exhibition of 1930s art opening up at the National Gallery of Victoria. I think it's in July. Yeah. And so that has a very wide um, sort of catchment of both men and women and you know what the culture was like at the time so this process of like revisiting and reinterrogating and you know um it, it usually it really helps women because women are the ones who get you know um it's like the gaze does not fall on them as easily as it falls on a man Definitely. And the prices uh, for their works will hopefully rise. Mm, mm, mm. Janine, thank you so much for sharing your expertise. It's fabulous to have you on the show and um, look forward to hearing what else you're doing in the space. Okay. Thank you very much, Amy. And you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. I'm Amy Mullins, the host of this show on 3RRR. You can listen in every Tuesday in Melbourne at 9am till 12pm. And if you are elsewhere, you can listen online through the Triple R website. Hope to see you again next time.